Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, or MySpace. And welcome to our Schriever Space Power Forum Series. We're so pleased to have with us today Major General Sean Bratton, the Commander of Space Training and Readiness Command, also known as STARCOM. As a STARCOM Commander, Major General Bratton is responsible for preparing the U.S. Space Force and more than 6,000 Guardians to prevail in competition and conflict through innovation, education, training, doctrine, and test activities. And he does this during a period of an increasingly threatened space domain, rapidly modernizing peer adversaries, economic uncertainty, and new realities about both the vulnerabilities and opportunities involving the domain of space. Major General Bratton has served in various operational and staff positions and was the first Air National Guardsman to attend the Space Weapons Instructor Course and is deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and served as the Director of Space Forces at U.S. Northern Command. Prior to becoming the commander, he served as the Space Training and Readiness Task Force Lead. Welcome, Sean. It's so good to have you with us here this morning. It's a great opportunity for us to uh, pick your brain and for the entire community that's logged in here to understand the progress you've made over the last year and some of the challenges you face. I'd like to kick things off by just uh, giving you an opportunity to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you'd like to uh, proceed today. Sir, thanks. And, and thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Great to spend a little bit of time with you to talk about Starcom and what's going on in the Space Force. We're, we're just coming off the AFA Symposium out here in DC, which was incredible and, and got to connect with a lot of folks and share a little bit of what we're doing. But the, but the chance to go maybe a little bit deeper today, I'm appreciative of it. Um, I'll tell you, I'd like to start with a, a story, something happened recently that's, I think, a pretty incredible story um, that, that talks about maybe one of the Space Force's core values. And so, you know, we have all these new organizations that have come into the Space Force and, and some are standing up from scratch, of course, and some have come over from the Air Force and they bring with them sort of the lineage and heraldry that comes comes with the Air Force units or any military unit. And one of the STARCOM squadrons is the 328th Weapons Squadron. It, it does our most advanced training. It's out at the weapons school producing weapons officers for the Space Force, still teamed there, of course, with the Warfare Center. Um, but the 328 draws its history, its lineage back to the 328th Bombardment Squadron, which was a, a B-24 squadron in, in the Army Air Corps days of World War II. And they're, they're maybe most famous for the Ploesti Raid. They flew in the Ploesti Raid. And the squadron commander, the original squadron commander at the 328th Bombardment Squadron um, was Addison Baker, Lieutenant Colonel Addison Baker. And he flew the Ploesti mission, was the lead aircraft. Um, took His aircraft took fire and, and ultimately, after completing the bombing run, crashed and the, the entire crew was killed and was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions. The... Um, the crew, they found the crash site at the time, but they couldn't identify the remains and they they buried them there in Romania um, in sort of a un, you know unknown soldier uh, grave. And then after the war, they were reinterred to Belgium and still in an unknown status. But recently um, they were able to, you know, uh, exhume those remains and bring them back to the States and identify, eventually identify many of the crew members. And Colonel Baker was one of the ones that identified his remains and they had made contact with the family and, and pulled, got DNA samples from the family and able to match it that way. 
Well, last week he was interred, reinterred, I guess, in Arlington, you know, brought home to the United States for his final resting place. And and Graveside, that this amazing connection that we have, um, you know, Graveside was the several of the former uh, now Space Force squadron commanders and the current squadron commander. And I, I was I happened to be at the Pentagon for meetings, so I was able to go over for the funeral service and talk to the family, um, who who none of which were in the military. And so they were they were fascinated by this connection. The, the building out at Nellis is actually named Baker Hall after Colonel Baker, where I went through as a student. And so uh, pretty great, you know, to be there for them, to, to connect with the family. They're, you know, they're very excited. They all want to go to Nellis now and see the place. Um, and it made me really think one of, you know, this is what we talk about when we talk, General Raymond in particular talks about the core value of connection, but also, you know, really made me think like, man, I wish we'd been there for those guys. The, you know, you know the story of the Plessy Raid and navigation errors and, and um, unexpected threats that they faced in that raid. And the, you know, if the, you know, certainly would be science fiction. But if we'd been there with GPS and missile warning and intelligence from space, um, we we really could have helped those guys out. Um, and so I, I wanted to tell the story one because I I think it's fascinating that you know Army Air Corps all the way to the, the newest service, the Space Force, we still have that connection. But also, you know, here's a crew that, that gave their lives um, and, we, and we certainly would never forget those guys. And, uh, and one of them was brought home last week and, and interred in Arlington. So, uh, so not, not specifically relevant to Starcom other than the lineage and Heldrick piece, but, uh, but a great story I wanted to share. Um, I do wanna, I'll talk just for a minute and I think we'll get much more into it. Uh, as we go through the hour here on, on Starcom and what we've done. So I think probably everyone knows Starcom, one of the three field commands in the Space Force, Space Operations Command and Space Systems Command are the other two. And Starcom is responsible for training and doctrine and education and test. Um, we do a lot of that in partnership with the Air Force, of course, but but we hold the reins for the Space Force on those areas. And in our first year has, you know, we stood up from scratch. There was there was not a previous command. Um, that, that had all these responsibilities. And so we're, we're building from scratch, uh, hiring staff, bringing military members in, going through the basing process for the headquarters and several of the deltas. Um, but at the same time, we're producing guardians. You know, we're, we're, we establish a presence down at basic training, and I'll, I'll talk a little more about that, I think. Um, we're doing advanced training exercise, space flag, and our, our new exercise series. We're building towards the Shriver War Game. We're, we're publishing doctrine. And so there's a lot of activity both that we did in year one and then really where we're going to year two. So, so I really look forward to talking to you, sir, about it. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it's hard to believe, you know, we first chatted about a year ago and the command had only stood up in August of last year. So, I mean, you're a year and, and a month in, into this command. And I, I know when new commands stand up, it's often they issue you a desk, a phone and a flag and, and you're <laughs> the only person in it and saying, get going. So it's going to be exciting to hear about the progress you've made. I'm so glad you brought up Ploesti um, and your musings or your thoughts about how different that could have been. It, it reminds me of how important it is that we uh, don't put our airmen, our soldiers, sailors, and Marines in that environment again by not being able to maintain space superiority in a future conflict. Because that's what we'd go back to, right? It would be back to World War II war fighting if we didn't, if the Space Force isn't able to provide the um, GPS capabilities, the overhead reconnaissance, all the things, missile warning, the things that you've talked about, over the horizon communications. We'd be right back to Ploesti tactics and 
ploesty size losses, which, you know, we, we didn't plan on space being militarized. I think uh, military leaders always anticipated it would happen, but it was the United States that led in that area. It was our adversaries, China and Russia. And, and now it's clear that they are fielding capabilities um, and people to attempt to control the ultimate high ground. And, and our space forces in the past, um, before this change, mostly provided critical capabilities like the one we just discussed to support the other warfighting domains, air, land, and sea. But, but now um, there's, they'll certainly need to do that going forward, but now they must develop war fighting skills and a war fighting ethos to fight and win in space to deter conflict first, and if necessary, conduct offensive and defensive operations in the domain to gain and maintain superiority. So we don't have to fight like World War II. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, because that's a change, that's a significant cultural change. Can, yes, you, can you talk about the challenge of building a unique space force culture and a war fighting ethos and how you're, how you're working that? Yes, sir. No, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, in the in the time that I grew up as a space operator, it was we really were focused on integration, you know, getting out from behind the green door, integrating space capabilities into air, land and sea domains and, and enhancing the success of those um, those operators in their respective domains. And so, you know, we we worked hard on the AOC construct, integrating in there. And that was the warfighting aspect of it was get the capabilities to you know, into the cockpit, into the tank, onto the ship. The, you know, the adversary watched us do that and we were incredibly successful at it. And the, and the adversary watched us and, and realized, hey, we have to go after uh, the United States of space capabilities. That's a way that's, you know, they've, they've created a dependency there. And, and um, I think I think the is trying to exploit that dependency. And so that moves, that really brings warfighting into the space domain. There's, a, there's legitimate threats there now. We've seen them demonstrated by multiple countries and so now we have to respond not just integrate space capabilities which which we need to continue to do but uh, protect and defend those capabilities on orbit and and it is a it is a big shift for uh, you know for for the forces that came over from the air force as well as all the inter-service transfers coming in we're we have to be prepared to fight in the domain and we have to defend against these threats and so um, that drives absolutely changes in doctrine and training and education. You know, the doctrine piece is really, um, it is really maybe the toughest challenge. How do we fight in space? How do we think about that? Because we've never done it before. There's no lessons learned from a conflict yet because, because fortunately we haven't had, you know, a single battle in space, but we have to be prepared for it. And so, you know, doctrine usually draws from experience and we have an area where we have no actual experience. So we're really relying on uh, war games and exercises, developing concepts that we can try out in those venues um, and then roll into doctrine. And hopefully it'll stay that way, right? Hopefully we won't have the conflict in space. Uh, but in order to prepare the force, we have to think about these things and really develop it. So we have in Starcom Delta 10, uh, Jay Fomo runs the show out there. They're working hard on both on Shriva War Games uh, to bring in allies and partners in this. But really that initial thinking on what is space superiority? How do we how do we achieve it? And and that drives a host of things and activities for Starcom and aggressors and range activity and exercise programs. And so we're, we're making that shift. We're certainly in the first year 
Um, we came out of the gate with some initial doctrine, but we're working right now really on the 3.0 series, command and control um, doctrine, as well as just overall, uh, here's how we think we would fight in space. Just, just like the Air Force prepared me for years and years on how we gain and maintain air superiority. And I knew and learned at places like the weapons school, you know, here's where the fighters go, here's where we put electronic support, uh, tankers are out here, the bombers come in, come in next, you know, how to, how to execute that battle. Um, we're thinking through and learning how to do that in the space domain. Great. Um, <clears throat> but also there's this, excuse me, <clears throat> war fighting ethos we talked about. Um, and, you know, so the Marines are probably the best at this. Uh, they, they, you know, when you go to Paris Island or down to uh, off, off San Diego there, they, they, you, when you come out of their training, um, I, I don't know if you may not have the tattoo on your arm, but you got the tattoo on your heart about being a Marine for life. Yes, and um, have you thought uh, about that for the the Guardian Force? And you know, do you need a separate location to train them? Right? No, I'm pretty sure right now you're still training most of our, our new enlisted Guardians down at <clears throat> Lackland Air Force Base, and uh, and and so do you do you think there's a need to have a separate location, a separate um, branding, if you will, uh, indoctrination to build this force? With the warfighting ethos that is going to be so important for it, I do. We've we've made some great strides, and the Air Force and the ATC teammates really are are taking great care of us. Um, you know, down at Lackland now, when you go down there, there's uh, the Guardians now go through in in a cohort. So when when the Space Force first stood up, you might have a single Guardian in a flight of airmen, and they were getting the same curriculum that the that the training wing developed or delivers down there, and they would graduate you know, with blue tapes, but really uh, the, the foundation was, was all airmanship. Now we have, um, we have all the guardians go through together as a guardian flight. Uh, we've got separate dorms for, for them. We've got guardian MTIs. And so we, we do have our own, you know, kind of within the big enterprise down there, we have our own space. Still surrounded by big blue air force though, absolutely. I think, and then the same at Keesler, we continue to leverage uh, Keesler for cyber training within the Air Force construct and, and out at Goodfellow for intelligence training for those officers. Uh, Vandenberg is the place where we really own in Delta One, part of Starcom, we really own all the space training out there. But um, what we recognize for, for culture and identity reasons, we need, to, we need to think through how do we ensure that guardians are guardians first. Uh, before we try and make them into into something else, and then also how do we uh, how do we deliver the curriculum that we need uh, to for the for the um, tasks that we need them to do in the space force? And so we're working on curriculum both for cyber and intel. Um, we've delivered there's about 35 now you new out or new curriculum hours um, down in basic training that the guardians get that is different from what the airmen get. And so, so absolute progress. We use the phrase a lot. Uh, you know, what's the Paris Island of the Space Force? Just, it, just as you brought up, and and can we? We think maybe it'll be more efficient in time to to collapse into a single location. We're small enough that we can do that. You you wouldn't be able to do that in any of the other services. But we only put 500 guardians through basic training each year, and so we think we can bring a lot of training to a single location. I think that helps with culture and identity, but it also helps us training pipelines, control of the curriculum, um, inter introducing maybe with a little more agility, uh, new curriculum based on threats that are coming. And so 
we, we've got a vision and roadmap document that we're working on. I think we'll, we'll probably publish that towards the end of this year. Um, and it really articulates sort of the 10 year plan of where we want to be with training with, with a big emphasis on warfighting. Great. <clears throat> uh, speaking of warfighting, I think one of the, the big lessons we learned in Vietnam is that uh, you, you got to train the way you plan to fight. <clears throat> and you've, you've mentioned the challenges of, you know, writing doctrine without a lot of <laughs> real experience in it. But, uh, uh, but if you could maybe a little bit, uh, expand upon what Starcom's thinking about regarding realistic training environments and exercises that can prepare guardians to fight in, uh, through, and from space, perhaps someday. Yeah, we we um, we got some a couple of the units that came over from the Air Force were uh, aggressor and range units, mainly focused on electronic warfare, and we've been in that business a long time. And when we were part of the Air Force. And so they came over. We're creating now the orbital warfare kind of counterpart. So the 57th aggressors, new aggressor squadron, new range squadron. Um, we're looking ahead to to how do we incorporate cyber in that? Do we bring in, you know, how do we develop a cyber range to to build those professionals and, and maybe an aggressor capability that would be quite honestly very useful for the test enterprise as well. Um, but the but the um, the culminating activity or, or the uh, maybe the ongoing activity for those we knew had to be more than space flag. And so we've run space flag for a long time, modeled very much after the Air Force flag series. And that was that was sort of a capstone event where we bring guardians together. Um, but there wasn't a lot of live activity in there. It was it was mostly a planners exercise, a great opportunity to bring folks together sort of at the operational level and think things through. Um, but we knew we owed really General Whiting's team at Spock a little bit more than we'd been given them in the past. And so this week, actually, we're executing, black, it's called Black Skies. It's a live fire electronic warfare exercise. But we're going to unfold this, this new series of exercises, the Sky series. So uh, Black Skies will be electronic warfare. Red Skies will be orbital warfare. Blue Skies will be cyber warfare. We think we'll be into Red Skies next year. We're doing the initial planning right now. Um, Black Skies will continue to run, so we're, we're in execution this week. I, I just can't wait to get back and see how it went. Um, but several units and the range and the aggressors all coming together. And so it, it, I think it's a more realistic training environment. We certainly have a long way to go to build out the range. Um, but, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And it really gets into the readiness and the presentation of forces that the Pentagon team is moving towards as we present forces to the combatant commands. Uh, from the Space Force and then making sure those forces are ready and that we're able to accurately measure the readiness, you know, before an exercise event and then after the exercise event to show improvement against really the operational commands requirements. Well, thanks for telling us about black flag and blue and green red flag. That's, yes, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's news to me. That's terrific. I, I've been very familiar with space flag over the years. Uh, do you see that uh, bringing all those flags together? Is space flag then going to be seen as a kind of a culminating event where you can bring all those different aspects of offense, defense, cyber, et cetera, together in an integrated exercise? Is that kind of the future vision? You know, you're you're exactly right. And even beyond that, so uh, space flag just got accredited as a joint national training capability, the first one that the Space Force has, similar to that, you know, red flag has that same accreditation. So we, you know, we've always brought uh, other service members in that this past execution of space flag 
we had the biggest army presence that we've ever had. We actually had the, the commander of the first space brigade came over to be the space boss for a day, um, Doc, Colonel Don Brooks. And so, so great capabilities with our joint partners. Um, and we absolutely need to continue that. But also in December will be the coalition space flag. So we're bringing in the allies as well. And I think space flag will serve that, that broader community and be exactly as you, as you talked about, that the place to integrate um, orbital warfare, electronic warfare, intelligence, cyber. The Sky series will, I think, be more focused on the increasing readiness of the operational force, making sure we have the metrics to measure that, and then delivering against their training objectives for crew member certification and um, mission essential task certification. And so we're, we're, we're continuing to build out our thinking on the Sky series. Um, at the same time, we'll continue to execute space flag. Okay. <clears throat> Terrific. And, you know, you've talked about training ranges already, and that was something we were always lacking in the past, uh, was a place to, well, and we didn't have the need to, because really we weren't in a, we hadn't declared space as a hostile environment years ago exactly. under Air Force Space Command, but now, now we know it is what it is. So it's wonderful to hear that you're looking at uh, improved training regions, uh, aggressor cadres that can actually simulate or emulate <clears throat> adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures and capabilities to, to challenge your guardians in, in that environment. Um, but space is a little bit unique in that um, at Red Flag, you can bring in airplanes. <laughs> uh, and, and so how much do you are you going to depend on simulations and how much... Um, and, and are you envisioning having maybe dedicated satellites on orbit that you can train with and against? I think that the um, I think that's a great question. Well, uh, let's see. There's a bunch of acronyms here, so I'll I'll spell them all out real quick so I don't trip over myself. But you'll hear um, General Saltzman is the COO talks a lot about operational test and training infrastructure, so OTTI. And then at Starcom, we talk a lot about the the place we 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 use OTTI most is the National Space Test and Training Complex, uh, which we just say the range, but really we mean the NSTTC. And, and there's a lot of sub pieces to the NSTTC, but, um, but as we think about the range we need, we're trying, to, we're trying to work through the balance between what activities uh, have the greatest training benefit to do live. And so do we need to live fly a trainer spacecraft early in training, or can we do that all in simulation? And, and how do we place value on live training versus simulation? And, and so we're, we're talking a lot to Space Operations Command, General Whiting's team on what are, their, what are their crew member certification requirements? So if they have a requirement, for example, for a live fire EW activity, then, then we will build a range that supports that. Or if they want to practice, um, you know, Rendezvous and proximity operations. The um, do we need to do that in the live environment, or maybe I can do that in the simulated environment? And so, our our understanding of how do we value that um, is, is, I would say, evolving. I think that I think the needle. You know, we we don't do anything live or very little live um, today. And so operators go all the way through training, and they've never flown a spacecraft until they show up at their first operational unit. The, the the one exception would be for the at the Air Force Academy if they were part of the Falcon Sat program, you know they fly a, a CubeSat, they build and fly CubeSats there. 
I think we're looking at, at maybe doing some more of those activities and moving the needle a little bit back towards the live side earlier in training so we can get some sorties under their belt before they show up at the operational unit. I think right now there's a lot of training burden on the operational unit that that is really, I, I need to do a better job in building operators before they show up to Spock. And so if we can shift some of that kind of left in the training pipeline, I think that lets the operators stay focused on operations and we pick up some more of the training. But to do that, we have to we have to understand and build out this range capability. We, we also really need the range capability for test. And, and I think the fact that both of those are combined in Starcom, I, I can get a lot of dual use um, activity. It's sort of, it, you know, in the Air Force, if we took Edwards and Nellis and jammed them together, which actually is exactly what they're doing now because they need that much airspace. Um, but I think we have an opportunity to build a single range that services both communities, that both the test community. And so if I need a, wit a witness satellite for test activities, maybe I can also use that as a training satellite for the aggressors to use in a, in a Red Skies event. And so, uh, you know, we're looking for, for help from industry, I think, in this area. Uh, we're developing our thinking. We stood up, at, you know, General Gutline stood up a program office for the range that is co-located with my range guys. And so it's a, it's an integrated program office with the range operators and the choir is sitting right next to it and each other. And we're building that architecture right now. And uh, I think next year we'll really see some progress in acquiring things for the range for testing training purposes. Terrific, terrific. Let me pull a thread on simulators for a minute. Um, uh, in the air domain, the Air Force uses simulators to facilitate initial qualification training mission qualification training and proficiency training once you're at the unit level uh, and they do it at the tactical level and typically within the squadron and wing organizations further they've developed facilities that allow training and wargaming at the operational level of war so they're aocs their operations centers to train folks in the command and control centers before they actually get deployed or actually are in combat and have to build a plan and execute a plan at the, at the operational level of war. I know this wasn't true in Air Force Base Command, again, because there wasn't the threat or the need. It, but And in fact, most of the training was done on the job and on live systems, which, which meant it was always difficult for this Air Force Base Command to support combatant commander war games. Uh, there was no platform to do war gaming on, no simulation platform. Uh, no platform to do tactics, techniques, or procedure development, or a platform where you could just flat sit down and innovate with uh, new ideas on how you might operate. So what are your thoughts on fielding simulators for both initial and ongoing tactical training, as well as operational training at the operational level of war? Yeah, we, we, there's certainly, we certainly need to do better than we're doing today. And, and when I, you know, I go to Space Flag and the, the team's working hard, they're delivering really the best training that we can today, but uh, we're, we don't have dedicated training space for that. You know, we actually, the staff members vacate their, their workspaces so we can turn it into an exercise space um, while the exercise is running. We, you know, we don't have dedicated rooms. We certainly don't have the, the fidelity of simulation uh, to present a threat environment that we need to, to really have guardians be ready for the fight if it comes. And, and we have to do better than that. We do have some simulation capability for kind of task trainers 
um, how to operate a spacecraft and, and the, the Spock folks use those and it's great capability for them for their, their individual systems. But, but we aren't able to bring those systems together in a, in a complex environment, a large force engagement um, and show the, the relationship between space cyber and Intel. And then even within that, between um, space surveillance, space domain awareness, um, operations on orbit, both you know on the defensive side, where, where are high value assets, you know, how they need to move and maneuver um, in su to support the defender activities. And so it's very difficult for us right now to bring all those things together in a simulation environment. We're, we're, we're looking at all the capabilities out there and there's a lot out there. Um, we, we went down and talked to NASA about how they think about this and how they do this. Um, we've gone to the other services to make sure that we understand the, the modeling and SIM capabilities that are out there. And so um, Gen General Moore is the deputy at Starcom and he he works you know, 99% of his time on this exact problem on how do we present a, a training environment that is realistic against the threats we're going to face. And, and we're certainly not there yet, but we're we're trying hard to move in the right direction. Great. You know, you talked a little bit earlier about test and test ranges. Um, you're uniquely, and I think it's important to emphasize, you know, it's Starcom that not only does all the training and doctrine development and wargaming, but you're the test, you're the testers for both development test, developmental test, and operational test for the systems that come out of um, out of the acquisition command, the acquisition element of space of the space force. Um, my, there, in, in my experience, being in, in, as a test pilot and operational pilot, there was always some tension between the developmental test cycle and then when that was hand, completed and the handoff to the operational test cycle. And frankly, my, I thought it worked best when you did it combined together. If you put the DT and the O teams together, it's a little tougher to manage, but the outcome is, is in my experience, the one program I worked on that was we got it to the field quicker. And it was combat ready when it got to the field um, quicker. What what are your thoughts on having both DT and OT under your responsibility, and how uh, how your Delta is going to handle that? Yes, sir. It is. It, it's actually um, you know the biggest Delta in Star Command is the test Delta, and we've stood up a couple new squadrons within there in there to to take on this enterprise. The the great thing is we got early on we got great advice. Um, from the Air Force on, you know, if you were if you were to start this from a clean sheet, how would you do it? And we talked to um, all the operational test agencies across the services. Uh, we talked to the DT team, um, and there and there's legitimate uh, tension and concerns there. We owe the program office, you know, they have cost schedule implications for any of the test activities that 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 they bear all the risk there, and so. Um, you know, that interaction between the acquisition community and the operational community between DT and OT is important. So we are, we do have an integrated approach. We're standing up integrated test force. Um, Delta 12 is the lead for that under Starcom, but the program offices retain the, you know, the responsibility and the authority on the DT side. We conduct the test activities and provide the data back to the program office. And then on the OT side, um, we're working closely with Afotech. We're actually in transition right now of the authority from Afotech to Starcom. There's some things that we have, it's called the OTA-4, and, and then the rest we think will transfer by next summer. Um, 
but the, the, the building of a professional test force that conduct, conducts integrated test activities that then sort of has two customers, you know, the program office on the DT side for General Gutlein's team, the, the uh, Starcom commander and Starcom staff on the OT side. And, and of course, ultimately, uh, DOTNE is very involved in, in all of this is where we're headed. We think it, it'll be faster because I can conduct fewer test activities um, and, and use the data for, in some cases, for both tests, depending on the, the circumstances and requirements of the test. So uh, we think it's a, a smaller test force. Uh, it'll go faster on the schedule side. Uh, and, and we're working hard to do this. I think a lot of people are watching closely to see, you know, does it maintain the independence for both of those communities? Um, does it actually is it actually faster and more cost efficient? We we absolutely think it will be. But now we got to we got to prove it in execution. And and uh, Link Bonner's the the commander out at Dell Twelve. He's leading the team right now in the implementation of that. And we're get, getting great support from the program offices. Quite honestly, as this as we move into this really new regime. Yeah. Have you had an opportunity to to start to implement that with any programs that? uh is working on right now or at least you know dip your toe into that yeah we we have we, we have the well the the brand new program office for the range is absolutely integrated but on that but but there's not a lot of test activity there right now we we've done um in this in the sibbers enterprise we've we've sort of been doing this all along we've had we've been side by side with the ot and dt folks up at buckley and so now we're we're just bringing them a little more tightly together and then Space Command and Control, SSC is working hard on delivery of some new capabilities. And, and we're really um, doing early operator involvement in, in those test activities under the, under the label of the integrated test force. And so those are two that right out the gate we're getting after. And then, you know, at the same time, Delta 12, like all of us, they're, they're building new squadrons and going through basing activities. Um, but, it, but we have to continue to do tests and WESIP activities and, and DT and OT combined activities. And so those folks are, are working really hard out there to get all this done. Great, great. You talked a little bit earlier about the difficulty of writing doctrine when, you, when you're just trying to imagine uh, what the future might look like. There's no empirical data to, to really look at, or not as much as you'd like, for sure. Um, beyond that challenge, um, do, you, do you feel like you're adequately equipped with the necessary technology you need to conduct the realistic wargaming that will allow you to develop your doctrine? You know that which you know could be rather sophisticated computational computers or computers, I should say, that uh, can give you the simulation and environments that allow you to to develop doctrine. Yeah, we we. Um... We're talking a lot to Mr. Cox and the SWAC team. So they they conduct war games for force design, and they'll do you know a thousand runs of a particular uh, satellite constellation to see how how resilient is it. Um, but they have the ability really to do a lot of analytical war gaming. The and so I think there's some systems and some analysis, especially at the higher security levels, that we can leverage from uh, SWAC and SSDP and bring over into Starcom. Which which will you know help us with costs and, and experience and all those things. I think also the Shriver War Game series, and sir, you're you're familiar with that. It's been around a long time. Um, we you know it was hard to do Shriver War Game during COVID, and we did some virtual activities for sure. But it wasn't the same as bringing the allies and partners in in the same room. And and the U.S. doctrine 
has to work in the coalition environment. And so being able to socialize these thoughts, have the policymakers there so we can talk about, uh, you know, where, where the boundaries on policy, where are we willing to explore new things? Um, how do we think about that in the, you know, today to influence activities in the future? That Shriver Wargame is great at that. I don't think we have a great, um, you know, simulation capability underneath that, uh, but it does bring everyone together in the same room to allow the discussion. So it's a little bit different than the, the very analytical wargaming that SWAC does. I think we're trying to find that right spot in the middle where we bring over a lot of the analytics so we can have good data coming out of our war games, but also still provide that environment at Shriver Wargame uh, to, to bring in the policy discussions, to bring in the allies and partners and the capabilities that they have. So we're looking forward in March, we'll be back to a full-blown execution of Shriver Wargame as we as we go into next year. Um, there's activities going on right now, and, and actually the UK and Australia are leading some of those activities for us. In the in what we now call the Shriver series, but it really is the build up to the capstone next year. Great. This is the second time, Sean, you've mentioned allies and coalition partners. And so, if, if we, what are you thinking about with regard to on the training side of um, teaming with them? I mean, I'm, I can remember in flight school, uh, uh, you know, back in the Stone Age when I went through. <laughs> With the Wright brothers, we had international students in in pilot training at test pilot school. I think we had six international students in my test pilot school class. Um, have you thought about how you might team with the coalition partners? Certainly, you're going to do that in training. Certainly, you're going to do that in the flag exercises and Shriver war games. But in the fundamental basic training side, do you see any opportunities there to to share training assets between us and our allies and invite them into our programs? I, I do. I think the, you know, we, we do a lot of um, shared education right now through the, the National Security Space Institute. A lot of interest for from coalition partners, uh, uh, you know, many nations to come through and put students through those schools. I think as the, you know, we've seen around the world sort of this revolution in space and, and folks stand up space forces and space commands. Um, and really a lot of work on the joint side and at the combat command level with U.S. Space Command and those partners and allies, we we have to train together if we're going to fight together. And so I think it, as we develop and build out the Sky Series, we'll, we'll work towards coalition objectives. We're doing that in space flag right now. And then I think we're real interested in the capabilities, you know, just, just like we fly together or, or, you know, operate together in land and sea domain conducting live fly exercise activities on orbit or um, in conjunction with allies activities will, will be important because that's how we're going to employ the force uh, when the day comes. And so a lot of work to do there. We're, we're trying to get out and talk to talk to the allies, see what they're interested in doing and, and put some kind of markers on the ground on here's what we want to do sort of beyond the classroom environment um, in live operations on, on orbit. Great. Um, let me shift to professional military education here, if I could. Um, when the Space Force, I think, when it was first established, I think the prevailing thought at the time was to just add space to the existing Air Force PME programs, whether it's SOS or Intermediate Service School, ACSC, uh, Air War College. Um, there's Since then, there's been changes to establish Space Force enlisted PME, but uh, I don't believe there's been changes yet in the officer PME program. Um, 
yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong on that, but in any case, what what is your vision for professional military education going forward for the Space Force? Yeah, we, uh, this it's another area in year one. We have worked really hard on this, and we're just about at the finish line, I think. Um, and so we did bring over, so the Vossler NCO Academy came over and is part of Starcom under Delta 13, the, and they conduct you know, NCO and Senior NCO Academy. Um, and, and it enables us to now introduce new curriculum. You know, what does the Space Force need from these programs? And there's there's guardian instructors there, and we're providing that. On the officer side, we've continued, you know, the IDESD model, we still have to meet the joint requirements that the J7 puts out from the joint staff that all the services do. Um, but General Raymond has said over and over, one, you know, one of the things a service has to do is develop its own people. And education is part of that. And so I think we we do need to separate and and identify our own thing. I don't think we're going to stand up, you know, space university or anything like that. We're not going to build an institution, but we're looking at some maybe innovative ways to partner with someone uh, that we can deliver the curriculum that our our officers need in ID and SDE. Um, really emphasize the war fighting and joint aspect of that. You know, when when I went to war college, I went I went through. Um, Air War College correspondence and then went in residence to Navy. And there were things I learned there that really I wish I'd learned as a captain that I could have used when I was deployed with the Joint Force in Iraq and that I could have used at U.S. Space Command. And um, and so I got them late. I got them late in my career. And I think we're really looking at how do we move some of those things earlier? How do we how do we emphasize more on the joint war fighting piece? Um, but can, but also deliver the space war fighting curriculum that we need. It also allows, you know, the, the we, we have great teammates at AU and they're taking great care of us, but they have to focus on the air domain. That's their responsibility to the airmen that go to those, those courses. Um, as, as, you know, we work towards this, we'll, of course, continue to send people to Air War College and Navy War College and Army War College. We're re required to do that as a service, just like, you know, we, we welcome them to, to our, our school when the day comes and, and we split off. And so... Um, so I think we're getting close. We're talking to General Raymond a lot about it in these past past few weeks, and I, I, hopefully we'll have an announcement soon on that. Terrific, thanks. You know, again, flashing back to a year ago when uh, we first chatted, I think you had uh, it was in I think it was in September, October. You'd only stood up the first of August. You had fifty people in the headquarters, <laughs> uh, and and you you were hoping to grow to about two hundred and fifty. Uh, and I think you had about 800 total in the command with uh, the assets you had at, at Vandenberg, et cetera. But you were planning to grow that to about 1,500. Are those still kind of target numbers? And if so, how's it going? The, uh, those are still the targets, to, uh, 254 for the headquarters, military and civilian, um, and then about 1,500 across the enterprise, not counting students. And, and it's going really well. So we, you know, all the deltas in the headquarters, um, stood up in those early months. And so we have the five subordinate deltas. And I, I think I've talked about, I think I've talked about all of them uh, through the course of the discussion. The uh, We're working on the basing process right now. So we've conducted site surveys uh, for the headquarters and several of the deltas over the summer. And, and that information is now up at the Pentagon. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, at the end, maybe by the end of the year, we'll get a decision, but, uh, but we're standing by to you know, answer questions and continue to work that process with our teammates up there. The we're, we're hiring a lot. You know, that there's a lot of civilians. The Space Force is 50% civilian, and we're onboarding a lot of civilians. 
Um, so a lot of opportunity out there for folks and we need you, we need smart people. So, so let me know if you're looking um, both at the headquarters and across the deltas. And then, you know, we've really been lucky. We have the inner service transfers coming into the service from the Army, Navy, and Marines. And, and Starcom has really benefited from bringing some of those into leadership positions within Starcom, as well as just, especially on the doctrine side, the development of our thinking of space warfighting and being able to incorporate, you know, maritime thinking as we as we work through that or ground combat thinking, you know, and obviously airmanship. And so um, the inter-service transfers are really making us stronger. But we're, we're probably a little over a thousand folks in the total enterprise right now. We will continue to build as those those billets land across the next couple of years um, from the from the initial allocation that went to the Space Force. Of course, we're discovering things that we didn't, you know, we didn't think about a year ago that now we have to swing back and address. And so we're talking to the staff about, hey, you know, we didn't realize the, the resources we need, maybe at basic training, for example. And so but we're picking those things up and it's really it's really going forward that the training folks have moved out the fact that we're doing a, a you know sort of an independent basic training within the air forces infrastructure down there was a was a huge milestone that the movement to the sky series you know only a year in we're executing this new exercise um, I, i'm just so proud of the training team to deliver that and then and then like i said we're right about at the finish line with some pme thoughts uh, we did publish, you know, the 5.0 doctrine, the, the 1.0 doctrine. We're working hard on 3.0, which is the heaviest lift for sure. Um, so a lot, a lot done in the first year while the force was, you know, finding office space and furniture and GPC cards and all the things that you've got to learn how to do to be an organization. So it's been uh, it's been an adventure this first year. I'm I'm looking forward to see what the team is able to do in year two. That's great, Sean. You certainly ought to be proud of right yeah. for the team and all the hard work and accomplishments to date. But as you as you kind of paint the picture, there's a still a big hill to climb and a lot of work to done, a lot of support needed for the command from uh, from a uh, fiscal perspective and and to give you the opportunities to get the things you need to train folks. I, I just to be clear, I think um, a year ago, uh, I think you told me that really only is a Delta One is out at Vandenberg was really the only Delta under Starcom that had a home, a permanent home identified. It's the four other Deltas right now that uh, you have proposals in on, on where they would be located. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, we, we um, Delta One will stay at Vandenberg, but the training group there became Delta One. So, so no basing action required, but the other four all need it. We have uh, three of them, the packages for, for Delta 10, 11, and 12 are all up at the Pentagon. 13 we're working on right now. And then of course the headquarters, uh, it also has the basing package that's going through the process. Okay, thanks very much. Well, Sean, what we like to do in, in Space Power Forums is give our audience an opportunity to weigh in with some questions for you. And if uh, that's okay, if you will transition to that. And Great. My, uh, my colleague, Dan Rice is gonna help us by uh, looking at uh, on this, uh, on the Zoom call and who has their hand up or what what chats come in to ask you a question. So Dan, if uh, you'd come up, I'd appreciate it if you'd take over the Q&A section of this Space Power Forum, please. Absolutely, sir. Uh, so for our audience that's listening in, if you do have a question that you would like to ask live, I would ask that you please use the raise function. I'll call your name. Then you can ask your question to one of our guests. Um, 
While I'm waiting for those to come through, we do have our first written question that comes from an anonymous attendee. And they ask, during the nomination hearing for Lieutenant General Saltzman to be the next CSO, Senator Gillibrand and Hirono both expressed concerns around the training of new Air National Guard airmen who are space professionals. While the Space National Guard debate plays out, how will you ensure the Air Guard space professionals receive their required training and stay connected with their guardian brothers and sisters to ensure the readiness of those 14 Air Guard space squadrons? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I have a close tie to those folks because I am still in the Air National Guard. And, and so I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting uh, to see how things unfold. Um, but in the meantime, we we owe them training. So so today, you know, this week at Black Skies, in fact, there's, there's a ball going on right now. I think uh, the Air Guard is playing on that in that exercise with their electronic warfare capability from Vandenberg. And so we're incorporating them right into our most advanced training. We continue to send guardsmen and reservists through the weapons school. We continue to send them through initial skills training out of Vandenberg for the team. The, the one place we're separate is in basic training. So, um, you know, in basic training, we are building guardians, members of the Space Force, and, and, the, and the Air Force has different set of requirements. And so um, there is separation there. They are airmen and they go through Air Force basic training. Um, and that's the one place where where we're beginning to diverge more. So as I introduce new curriculum at BMT, um, the guardians are getting that and, and airmen are not. The, but everywhere else right now, it's, it's pretty much the same and we're taking care of the Guard and Reserve guys. They're getting training slots. We're, we're talking to them a lot about advanced training. Of course, I, you know, I think they're, they're deploying for us or really for General Whiting's team and US Space Command. So they are critical teammates. And we just got to work through this over the next year or two as we move towards uh, decisions on what the reserve component's gonna look like. Excellent, thank you, sir. Uh, so our next question for you, General Bratton, comes from Scott Sage, and he asks, do you see value in integrating the space and cyber ranges in the future? The, um, hey, Scott, good question. So I, I think a lot about the cyber range, and, and I was, uh, you know, I did some time um, with the Fort Meade teammates at Cyber Command, doing both offensive and defensive cyber operations. And we had some great capabilities there to build a cyber range uh, for my defenders, for example, that was representative of the cyber terrain that they would defend. We, we're, I'm trying to bring that into this into the Space Force. We owe, you know, Delta-6 is the cyber delta. They do most of our mission defense team, that defensive mission, um, but they don't have a place to kind of work out and train. We haven't given them you know, the gym that they can go to to get stronger and faster in a place where I can put the aggressors against them. Now, we we did bring them into Space Flag for the first time this year, and that was a big step forward. Um, and, we're, and I think we'll get better at integrating them in Space Flag, and then we'll build towards Blue Skies. But I have to have a, a representative network that they can train on and that we can put aggressors against them that is off the live system because there, there's just too much risk in doing those things live. So we need a cyber range. The more that it's integrated with the space range, the better, I think. Thank you. Um, so, sir, the next question comes from Scott West, and he asks, what's Starcom's role in assuring readiness? And is a U, uh, US Space Force force generation model in work, in the works? The, um, yes, I was talking to General Saltzman a few months ago, and he, he kind of, 
kind of put his finger on my chest. He's like, hey, readiness is in Starcom's name. What are you, what are you doing about it? And so, um, and we, we owe that for the force. So the way we're thinking about it is, you know, I'm conducting a lot of training activities now and we're executing Black Skies now. And we, we have training objectives that we meet that we get from the operational command, but um, I need a better way to assess the increase or the change in readiness, but hopefully an increase as they come out of those events. And we should see that reflected in things like sorts and durs. Um, but I think we got to go back and look at the mission essential tasks. And we're working with Spock on that right now to make sure that I'm providing the right training environment that actually demonstrates an increase in readiness. And then that will be part of the force generation model as they prepare to go into their, their combat rotation. You know, the spin active activities, I, I will shape black skies, for example, um, to just put the, the final edge of readiness onto those, you know, deploying members before they go into their combat rotation. And we'll do the same, I think, throughout the whole sky series. It'll really become the, the readiness function that increases the readiness of the unit before they go into their combat rotation. Sir, our next question comes from Mike Young, and he asks, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about basic military training, but are there plans to incorporate Space Force personnel into officer training school? The, um, yes, it's sort of, you know, with the, with the stand-up of the staff, one of the things is, what are we going to tackle first, and what are we going to tackle in year two and year three? Um, OTS is definitely there. R right now, we're, you know, they're doing a great job. We owe a little bit of curriculum development so we can incorporate space curriculum. I think eventually we'll see, you know, our OTS throughput is pretty small. It's about 50 to 70 officers a year. It's pretty small. I think if we do, if we do move to this sort of Paris Island construct, um, I think it's likely that we would, we would eventually incorporate OTS into that single training location. And so it, it is on the list to get after it. Right now, we're, we're thankful uh, for the Air Force partners um, and we're staying close in close touch with them on the curriculum development side, as well as trying to provide some guardian instructors down there uh, to have a presence in OTS. Great. Our, our next question is from Cameron Cantor and they ask, regarding the weapons school, is there utility in having a separate Space Force weapons school? Or should guardians remain at the USAF weapons school to learn to fight as the Department of the Air Force? Yeah, I get that. I, this is the question that people ask me the most above anything else. Are we staying at Nellis or not? Um, I, I think that the Warfare Center does such a fantastic job. And it is it's the in the list of things to do, you know, making changes at the weapons school is, is not even on it today because they are delivering capability. Now, the, the 328th belongs to Starcom. Um, Fargo Phipps is running the show out there, and they are modifying curriculum to meet Space Force requirements every day. But we have to remain tied to the Joint Force, and the Secretary is absolutely, you know, one team, one fight within the department. I think we'll stay, um, we'll, I, I really think we'll stay at Nellis and stay incorporated. Now, I, that doesn't mean we won't make changes. I owe our cyber operators and our intel operators a little bit more opportunity than we're getting today. And, and Nellis is pretty full. And so we're thinking through, you know, how do we expand our throughput for cyber and Intel? Um, how do we integrate them as part of the department with, you know, with all the things that you learn at Nellis as part of that integrating function? And so I think we're gonna stand up a cyber advanced tacticians course, 
eventually that may involve evolve into into something under the weapons school, but we got to talk to the Air Force about that a little bit. Um, and so, so for now, the 328th absolutely stay in there. We're going to increase throughput for cyber and intel, and we're working hard with the teammates out at the at the Warfare Center to do that. Thank you, sir. Our next question comes from another anonymous attendee, and they ask. Eventually, what's the vision for the link between analytical wargaming at SWAC and what goes on in other parts of Starcom? Is there a need to link those different environments together for flag exercises or other operational demand, or will they remain separate? Yeah, there's definitely a need to link them. And where I think about this the most, and we we talked a little about tests, but you know, the, the SWAC team is developing digital models that they use in the force design. Um, system and they run it and they run a bunch of uh, simulations to, to uh, really identify the best future force design. And once settled on, then they begin engage with industry and SSC and the CSRO team at the Pentagon to determine what we're actually going to acquire. But but I also want to be a, a user of those digital models as they as the model goes through the through the sort of acquisition process. And we settle on it and, it and it continues to be refined by industry partners. I need that model for testing purposes and for training purposes. And so if we can get a common baseline really at the, at the higher security levels for IT systems that lets us move information in that manner, that'd be, that'd be super helpful. There's a, we're, we're really struggling in this area right now, has a lot to do with, with IT policy at higher security and just the difference in systems. But if we can get some commonality there that lets us share that information, I think in the end it will result in faster testing. Once I get a, a digital twin or a high fidelity model that we're using for DT purposes, as well as a little bit for OT purposes. Um, but but the infrastructure is sort of the barrier right now that we're fighting through. So General Breton, our last question from the audience today is from Scott Sage. And he asks, how can industry help at this point? And what do you want to hear from them? Yeah, there's a couple, um, there's a couple areas that we talk about. We you know, I usually talk about the buildup of the range. I think that's our biggest sort of technical challenge. Um, and so that's one area for sure. And, I, and I've talked to a lot of the industry partners about it. The, the, maybe a different area that I don't talk a lot about is, we hear General Raymond talk about Space Force as a digi digital force. Um, and Dr. Costa and the team, the CTIO team, is working hard to deliver that reality. Um, but I pulled the team together at Starcom, and I think in year two, you know, we I owe the boss a better um, a better realization of what that means for digital force. And, I, and we think about it in sort of three areas. One is um, use of digital devices and training, and this is everything from you know a handheld device uh, through the advanced simulators. I need to be able to articulate and really increase my use of digital devices. It's another area where, where there's a lot of policy roadblocks or there seem to be, we're trying to understand that and work through how can I issue a device to guardians that they use throughout the lifespan of training as they move from organization to organization. It, you know, it sounds very simple, but it's, it's very difficult to do with the constraints that we have on us on the policy side for device management, for example. But I think the, you know, the digital natives that come into the force, they're ready to do that. They understand how to use these devices and we got to catch up. And so one is that that digital device piece. The second is delivery of curriculum. You know, I, I think there is absolute value of getting everyone together in a room and working together. 
but accessibility of curriculum through digital means um, increases the availability. And that's really where we talk about allies and partners, um, as well as making it available across all the space power disciplines, if you will. And then the third area is, is advanced training for those um, who have the aptitude and desire uh, to go beyond really what is required of them for the position. And this is where we talk about digital university and making training and education available that, you know, to go beyond, beyond the requirement for the position. And if you wanna sort of self-actualize as a digital warrior, that we give you opportunities to do that. And, and this is where we start talking about super coders and how we use those folks and the training we offer and how do we keep them current. And so those three areas that we're really working on in year two, but we're gonna need some help, I think, from industry partners. Dan, thanks for uh, leading us through this Q&A session with some great questions from our audience today, and uh, which always helps us wrap up a great space power forum. General Brighton, can't thank you enough for the time you've spent with us today and with our audience. Really appreciate you uh, participating today. Sir, uh, thanks a lot. My, my pleasure to be here, absolutely. Great to see you, and thanks for the conversation. You bet. Love to have you back as you continue to make progress with Star Command. Yes, and of sir. Course, forum if we didn't have our audience. So for everybody who logged in today and participated, we really appreciate it. And here at the Mitchell Institute for Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, we want to wish you a great Space Power Day. Good day.